Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the authors of The Houses of Louis Kahn, William Whitaker, and George Marcus. Our guests are George Marcus and William Whitaker, and they are the authors of this book, The Houses of Louis Kahn. George Marcus, if someone knows nothing about Louis Kahn, what should they know? Uh, they should know that he was a Philadelphian architect, uh, perhaps the most influential architect of the uh, second half of the uh, 20th century. He built buildings uh, all over the world, not very much in Philadelphia, except for his houses. What made him influential? Well, he, he was a wonderfully gifted artist and uh, addressed the question of architecture, in a sense, from a beautifully art artistic point of view. Uh, he found a new way of thinking about architecture in the middle part of the century that really shifted how we think about architecture, how we think about cities, how we think about art, you know, uh, houses. And, uh, you know, it became one of the great legacies of the, uh, of the second half of the 20th century. Is there something distinctive about his style? I mean, if you're riding along the road and you see a building, can you clearly say, oh, oh that's obviously a Louis Kahn? Well, it wouldn't be stylistic, right? It wouldn't, you wouldn't say that he did in the colonial revival style. Uh, his, his buildings are very, very monumental. They tend to be built out of materials that we would not think of uh, initially as being you know, beautiful, like concrete. Uh, but it's the way in which he handles that concrete and he's able to work, uh, in a sense, a little bit of magic to make it seem like it's marble. Now, it's, it's, it's a way of building that he's, he's looking at that, in that perspective, but it's, you know, that's one thing that you'll see. Um, but they're beautifully human, right? So it's more through the experience of, I would say, the appreciation comes from being in them. And if you're driving by, it's maybe not something that you'll necessarily notice, the real beauty of it. It comes in the quality of the natural light on the inside and the connection to nature that comes out of them. And these very human touches. So, you know, I would take exception to the kind of driving sort of metaphor and that it's, you know, it's something that, that uh, comes upon you with experience. You say in the beginning of the book that uh, Kahn's houses can be brilliant, but they are not demonstrative. What does that mean? It means that, just like Bill was saying, you really have to spend some time in them to sort of experience them, be inside, see how the light comes in, see how you look out through the windows to, the, uh, to nature outside and the way that he connected outside and inside. Um, they're just not, they just don't hit you in the head and, and say this is a, you know, this is, they're not manifestos. How did he come to be in Philadelphia? How I came to be? How he came to be How he came to be in Philadelphia. He grew up in Philadelphia, although he was born in Estonia. And uh, he came, he immigrated here when he was uh, about five. He was very poor. Um, they lived in the Northern Liberties. And, uh, and in fact, uh, they had a, he had 11 addresses between the age of five and when he entered high school. So he went to Central High School. So, uh, it, but he, he was talented as an artist. He was talented as a musician. 
um, and eventually he decided uh, to become an architect. How did he go from that impoverished background to being a world-class architect? I mean, how did, well, how did he get noticed? Philadelphia, the public school system was very progressive in the early part of the, the century. And uh, there was a, uh, an industrial arts school that was part of that program, and it was this, this uh, educator, J. Liberty Tad, wonderful name, right, uh, who was in charge of that. And it was a way to bring public school children who were gifted in the arts and who were directed towards the arts uh, into an afternoon program. I, I don't think it was every day of the week, but it was several times a week. So you'd go from your middle school or your elementary school, and for the better part of six or seven years leading up to high school, you were in these programs. And it was in that context that Khan, you know, began drawing. And it was through, yeah, he was, this, he was from Estonia. He didn't speak English very well. He was an immigrant. He was poor. He was in the public school. And so it was difficult for him, you know, to, to socialize. And, you know, he was, uh, it's, he's well known for having facial scars from having suffered burns when he was a very young boy. And there's a story to that. But, you know, uh, and so it was through drawing that he really was able to connect with people. I mean, he tells us this. And, and so he spent a lot of time learning how to draw and you know, often drew for some of his classmates. <laughs> um, but uh, it was really that that then led into high school. And in the last year of his studies, he was planning on going to art school, um, that he took a course on architecture. Um, and uh, that really changed his mind. So he enrolled in Penn and, and became an architect. And he later taught at Penn. Yeah. Many years later, uh, in 1955-56, he was brought back to Penn. And by then, he was not a world-famous architect, but he was becoming well-known. He'd done a very fine building at the, at the Yale University, um, the Yale University Art Gallery. Where um, he taught. Yeah, where he had been teaching uh, from 47. Uh, but he was brought to Penn to, to teach a master's studio and he would do that between 56 and 1974, the time he died. How does a young college student who's studying architecture get somebody to trust them to build their first building? I mean, this is not like commissioning a portrait or, or, or a garden. Well, it's, it's a building. His, the first building he built independently was a house. It was a house in Jenkintown for a friends of his, he, uh, someone who um, he went to school with and probably knew from uh, early in his life. And uh, the relationship there uh, made them trust him, and, and they, he built his first house for them. Is that so, house in this book? Yes. It's uh, called the Ozer House. Um, and it's a house that is made of uh, wood and stone. And it's a first indication of him turning his back on those uh, white buildings that were so um, known in the 1930s as the international style. and creating an architecture of, of, of homes, at least, that related very much to the context of the Philadelphia landscape, the Pennsylvania landscape. And, uh, and so that, that's how he began. How old was he when he built his first house? He was about 39. Oh, so he wasn't the kid. Well, I mean, he was working through the Depression. And so there were not a lot of opportunities for a young architect trying to make their mark. And uh, it was really in, you know, he got licensed in 1936, so he wasn't he wouldn't have been able to do independent works before then. There were some minor works that you know, were really alterations that precede the Ozer House. Um, but it was tough times in the late Depression. But it's a, you know, first works for an architect are always 
a challenging thing. Either it's a competition, right? For example, that there'll be uh, a blind competition, and you'll enter and you'll 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 succeed, and you'll get out there and you'll win. Or you're doing a house for your mom, or your dad, you know, or yeah. for a friend, and so that's you know the, right. this is what the case is here. During the 30s or the later 30s, he worked for the government on mass housing, so he he had some sense about housing, but not individual housing. And it's funny that he built nine houses um, only, all, all in the Philadelphia area, um, but he never lived in a in a house. He always lived in a row house. So the idea that he was building a house gave him the opportunity to do to be somewhat unconventional, to sort of rethink the idea of what a suburban house is. So uh, your book says he built nine houses and designed another couple dozen. What happened to the couple dozen that he designed and didn't build? Well, various, uh, various reasons. Sometimes they were too expensive. They, he, couldn't, uh, he couldn't come down on the price enough to uh, satisfy the clients. One would have been built, uh, but in 1942, the uh, wartime restrictions uh, wouldn't allow it. You could, at one point, you couldn't. That would have been his second house, right next to the Ozer house. Um, another time, uh, a family in Rydal, Pennsylvania, uh, was just about to build a house. Uh, they actually um, rented the house next door so they could watch it going up. And then two days before they were breaking ground, they called and said, we're, we're stopping. We're not going to build this house. He just was furious. He had no idea why. They never told him, but it turned out they decided they were going to get a divorce instead of build a house. But it, it, you know, it sort of was very sad, but, and, and for some reason they just couldn't tell him. And what were the years from the first house he built that's in this book till the last house? 1940, uh, 4042, which is the first house, till 1973, which uh, the year before he died. Can you see a progression in his work from the earliest houses to the later houses, or is each one? Well, that was the one of the things that was remarkable about working on the project was there's been many books about Khan. There's been studies about Khan. There's been articles. There's been major exhibitions. There's one traveling right now in Oslo on his work. But they generally have fixated on you know what I can call his monumental work. So his art museums. His you know he did the National Capital of Bangladesh, uh, which is a remarkable work, which is breathtaking in scope. Um, but people have always overlooked the houses, seeing them kind of as a lesser uh, genre, lesser of lesser importance. But what we discovered is you can literally go from his very beginnings as an architect in the late 20s, and by looking just at his ideas about uh, private houses. As his, his designs for private houses, how he represents those ideas, take it clear through to what we discovered to be essentially his very last commission, just a few weeks before he died, um, for a house out in Long Island for you know uh, Simone Swan, who was also you know who was a client for one of the art museums, and it would have been this very simple, very basic house uh, out in the Hamptons, um, and so just in that very fact, you see this remarkable evolution in his architectural thinking that if you were just looking at the monumental work you lose you miss part of the story because this really provides that connective tissue in the 1920s and 30s where he's evolving from someone who's classically trained uh, and where history is important and they're not forgetting that we live in a modern world uh, so their classicism, classicism is not a fixed vision uh, of classicism, it's one that engages with the modern world, uh, to 
you know, the idea that you divorce yourself from history, right? Which, you know, in the, the, the turmoil following World War One, there were many architects, especially in Europe, who were just, you know, really searching for another way to think about life in the world, right? And there's an amazing flowering of artistic expression coming out of that, that tumult. And Kahn is, in a sense, caught up in that. And by the 1930s, you really see him engaging with that. I mean, he's an artist, he's a painter, so he's looking at that, but he's also an architect, and he's looking at buildings that are being done. So when you think about some of what was being done, it's abstract, right? So it's a white box, right? And it's very clean line. There's no ornament on it. Um, and this was really radical. Uh, and while it was happening in Europe, it was also happening here in Philadelphia uh, in the late 20s and early 30s. The best example is the Philadelphia Savings Fund Society building at 12th and Market, which is now a Lowe's hotel. Um, and, it's a, and it's important uh, in many ways um, uh, as an example of American modernism. But Philadelphia was different, right? We had a different sense of what modernity was about because uh, a lot of the industrial age was here too. And so we had driving forces that shaped our context. But anyway, you can go all the way through to the 1940s, 50s, 60s, see his, his ideas about architecture evolving, developing, and by the 1950s really becoming uh, a unique and profound statement about architecture. I want to read you, speaking of the PSFS building, you, you say the Federal Housing Authority, FHA, would not guarantee the mortgage for the Oser House because it was modern. And ironically, the Philadelphia Savings Fund Society, PSFS, with its landmark international-style headquarters towering over Philadelphia, rejected Fred Cleaver's mortgage application because as an advanced modern structure, the house was not considered marketable. So even though that bank was in this building that was so modern, they wouldn't yeah. finance a, a house. I think the, the high upper directorship and the people who actually approved mor mortgages had different points of view about what, what modern, what a house had to be in order to get a mortgage. So what was the process here? If you, you wanted to build a house, you, you called up Louis Kahn, and a world-famous architect. How would you persuade him to build a house for you, and what criteria did he go by to decide whether to take the job or not? Well, you know, he, he said he never wanted to refuse uh, a commission because there was always something to be gained by it, something that it was a challenge. So that uh, it, it was a matter of time. If he had time, he could do it. And uh, he wasn't world famous uh, when a number of the houses were built. Anyway, by that point, uh, by, the, by the time he got famous, people came to him for trophy houses the last two or three houses. Was clients all rich? No. no. I mean, and, and that's one of the things that's remarkable about his work is you get a sense that he would engage with, with a client that their means, I mean, they had to have enough means to build a house, and so they were not, you know, a, a low-income family. But uh, there were houses of very modest means, and they're not particularly big. You know, there are some that are five, 6,000 square feet, but that's about as big as it gets. Um, but there are several that are 1,800 square feet, are built of very modest materials, which was part of his approach to architecture. Was that it? You know, uh, an ar a great architect could be judged by making the most out of the least, in a sense. It's a it's a it's a way of of understanding an economy of means, and that that there can be great art within that. Um, but you know, choosing clients and having clients choose you is a very you know interesting thing. And uh, you know, early on in his career. He's hunting like any other architect, you know, you know, pumping his friends for, hey, you know, someone who needs, you know, uh, a house. And so he had some buddies that were at NW Air, the great advertising agency in, in Philadelphia, and got, you know, three of them to commission structures, none of which were built, 
by the way. Um, but uh, you know, it's it, it it's a thing that evolves over time. Yeah. Did he see himself as as the providing the service and the customer was always right and was he deferential to the customer or did he think I'm Louis Kahn I'll build a house and you'll like it uh, neither in the sense that uh, his approach there are definitely architects and one of his clients the Fishers uh, noted that one of the firms that they interviewed before they found Kahn and by the way they used the phone book to find Kahn <laughs> um, but uh, you know one of the firms was very fixed in their idea of what a house should be and that put them off and uh, you know Khan when they when they came to speak to him was very flexible and open to a discussion of of what it is a house could be and in fact that was Khan's very approach was you were you were thinking about us you know creating some expression of a way of uh, life right that a house offers you that and you know each interaction with a client each interaction with a site, a builder, and so on, was an opportunity to, to reflect on that, right, in a new way. So that in, e in each way, each is different. Um, but the, there was no fixed idea that Khan brought to it. And I think this, in, you know, for many of his clients, this was a very engaging uh, quality that he had because he was very open to them and very open to their ideas and into embracing their ideas. But you know, there were things that he was flexible about and there were things he was not flexible about. Um, it, and I think that's just, that's present in all great architects is that there's things that, you know, you know, if you want a historic molding, you may not get it out of Luke Kahn, but he will, you know, help you understand its qualities and, and see, you can find, you know, an idea of that in, in his architecture, but it's his lines, it's his forms, it's not replicating the past. If you look at his houses, his nine houses, each one is different because they very much responded to the needs of the clients and also to the setting in which they were uh, placed. So that, that unlike most, many modern architects, Mies van der Rohe, uh, for example, who, so every house is sort of a, a white box with uh, metal and uh, glass windows, his is, each one is, his is very different. Did, uh, did he see himself as a rival of other architects at the time that, that were building houses? I mean, the one you always think of is Falling Water. Did, it, did he kind of see a competition there? Well, I mean, I think he, he was, you will not see him criticizing other architects. Uh, you know, in, in all the, the lectures and all the um, interviews that we have, he's just, he, he won't compete with other architects. Uh, in, inside the drafting room, you know, he he would see things and and be a little bit more open in a in a small way. But um, I think he was always striving to achieve uh, um, the highest levels of design to get attention. And so in that way, you know, he was a rival um, and could have jealousies that all great artists do in seeing the success of others. Um, but in Philadelphia, there was plenty of space for, for architecture, and I don't think that there, you know, I don't know of any instances that, you know, I've heard where he was like, you know, cursing out another rival. Um, what was he like to be around? Neither of us actually met him. He died in 1974. Um, but he apparently uh, was very charismatic. Uh, 
you just hear lots of stories about people who would, you know, sit in on his lectures and just be thrilled with it. Um, no, he had a magnetic charm and a very, there was a very, uh, you know, he had a certain physicality to him. I mean, I mentioned the burns he had. I mean, he was, he was not necessarily a, a handsome man in the conventional sense, but he was a very attractive man uh, in terms of his presence, his physique, you know, uh, I hear this from you know, people who worked with him. We spoke with many of his clients so that you, you can get a certain picture of, of him. And he was very, you know, he had a spring to a step, right? His office was at 15th and, and Walnut, and there's some images of him from a documentary in the 60s. And you see he's kind of throws his coat over his shoulder, and he's, you know, almost prancing across the street. But he was very magnetic, you know, and so in a conversation, you know, almost everyone that you, you hear um, who had this experience was it was like he was speaking just to you, and there was this incredible connection, this incredible human connection that he could make uh, with individuals that he was talking with uh, in a small-scale conversation in an audience. I didn't work with everyone, you know, but it, it worked in important ways and uh, very gregarious uh, and, you know, talented musician, so he could, you know, after a long day's work with the with the guys uh, on a Sunday in Philadelphia, this is a favorite story of mine. Uh, he's with uh, uh, working on one of the housing projects during the war, and in Philadelphia, you couldn't get alcohol. You couldn't get a drink on Sunday at the end of the day. So uh, they were working on a on a you know Roosevelt was still president. They were all Democrats, but they had to join the Republican <laughs> club <laughs> to find a place to get a drink that night. And they, they, they walk into the joint, and he walks right over the piano. And it's an upright piano, and the, the guys are getting the drinks. And he starts playing Rhapsody in Blue, right? And he plays it with such force and with such energy. You know, it just it captures everyone in this room. And, you know, the, the, the person who relayed the story is, you know, uh, you know, that he didn't know if he had an extensive repertoire of, 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 of uh, of tunes that he could play, but you know, he really did, you know, play that with, with with gusto, with real spirit, and it just, you know, it made the party in a sense. So, I, I think that you can get a, a, more of a feeling for him if you were to watch um, the documentary that his son Nathaniel made, called My Architect, um, and this explores uh, the architect from the family point of view. And without dwelling on the prurient too much, is it fair to say he had three different families at the same time? Yes. Um, he, um, he had relations with two of his assistants, um, and a child was born from each of those. So. Yeah, so three kids in total. So there were simultaneous, you know, at some point there were three families, um, but they were not necessarily romantic overlaps in all of them. So. And you say in your, uh, your uh, book that some of his houses reflected kind of a hominess, or he was aiming for a hominess that he didn't necessarily have in his life? That's our interpretation, but he also says uh, relatively early in his life, he tells his um, daughter Sue Ann that his idea of a house or his vision of a house is someone standing outside of a house looking through a many mullioned window into a kitchen where there's a woman cooking and a happy family and the light glowing. And as I said before, he never had a home of his own. Um, 
even when he was married for 36 years, he lived in an apartment in his wife's family's house in West Philadelphia. So he, I think underneath it all, he was searching for home. And in the very last house that he built, um, the one that's on the cover of the book, um, what you see when you enter the house is the family dining room and the kitchen set apart from the rest of the building um, in a sort of um, separate pavilion. And there's no other house I know uh, that is built that way, that what you see before you go through the front door is the home setting, the kitchen and the dining room. Well, getting back to the, the process of how a house would unfold. So somebody would get in touch with them and say, okay, we want to build a house, and what happens then? Uh, well, a conversation. I mean, there would be a meeting, and I think any architect would have this sort of exchange where uh, you're not necessarily committed to doing the design, or the client's not necessarily committed to hiring you, but you're having a conversation that involves a discussion of what are we, you know, how, would, how might we do this, right? And, you know, from that point, you, you know, you put a deposit down, and we have some receipts for $250 to, you know, to begin sketches. And Was he expensive compared to other architects? No, the, for architects, there were fis fixed fees. Hmm. And so, you know, generally for houses, you know, there was a 10% fee. Um, and these are, these are things that were established by the profession of architecture. And, you know, you could negotiate that if you're designing furniture, there may be an added fee that's separate from the commission. Um, over time, that's changed because houses are a very expensive thing relative to an architect's, what an architect has to do versus, uh, you know, a, a 400,000 square foot laboratory building. Um, because of repetition, you know, there's actually less design work given the fees so that you actually have the potential of making a profit where I think architects always lose money designing houses. It's very difficult to do a great house and not lose your shirt <laughs> in it. Um, but, uh, you know, some first sketches would happen fairly quickly with Khan, and it would be just, you know, after that initial conversation, just a quick impression you know, three or four sketches. He might make dozens and dozens of them in the office before this presentation with a client. And then it might be four, five, six months, depending on his schedule, before they would meet again. So I think he felt the need, the desire to make a quick connection to, to establish a relationship, to establish a rapport with a client to build something that then would, would stew for a while. Um, because he had many other projects going on at the same time. And this is, you know, he had to have his hand on everything. So with the volume of work that was in his office, there were always things that were, you know, being put on a back burner for a while, regardless of their size, regardless of their significance. It was just a way of kind of moving pieces around, you know, to manage his time. Did he do a lot of hands-on with each of these projects, or did he farm it out to people? He had his hand on everything. The, the, the people in the drafting room always said there was only one architect in that office. And right. we can see that because um, he, for some of the houses, he also designed furniture. And when we look back at the designs of furniture, uh, we realize that they're all dated on a Sunday. He lived in Philadelphia. He would come over to the office when nobody else was around, and he would do this value-added uh, part of the uh, of the house. So he would he would design a table or some of the built-in furniture when he when he could steal the time. What was his business? That what was the company, and, and who did how, how big was it? Uh, the, well, architects have an office, and it's generally their name, right? So he was in partnership with a few architects uh, in the 1940s, 
1947, it became Louis Icahn Architect. And, uh, you know, but that's the familiar form, right? Uh, and from there to 1974, it was his office. Uh, when he started that office, it was over on 17th, uh, on Spruce Street. And uh, he was three. And by the 1950s, it maybe had grown to, you know, six or seven or eight. And sometimes people are there, you know, for, for a decade or more. Other times it was someone who was just there, you know, for a year, for a few months. By the 1960s and 70s, when his office is getting quite busy, it's still only about 20 people. Um, now, he was teaching at Penn, and he could bring in a night shift, you know, and I'm saying that metaphorically, that it's, he, his students could come in, they would charrette. And charretting is, is uh, it's a French term that all architects know. And it really means you're, you're, you're burning the midnight oil, right? And uh, you're, you're in a, a short period of time leading up to a major presentation. And so you're putting all your effort in preparing that presentation. He could bring the students in to build models, to work on finishing drawings uh, overnight, uh, while the nine to fivers, you might characterize it, were, were, were resting up and then coming in. Uh, so in that period of the 60s and 70s, you know, the offices at 15th and Walnut two floors of a building that still survives, it's still there. Um, you know, but never more than 20. And right? this is not a lot for a man who uh, created the capital of Bangladesh, huge buildings, and at the same time was working on uh, the Mellon Center for British Art at, uh, in Yale and other buildings. Are there any major projects in the Pennsylvania area that you can go see? Well, the, the for us the in Philadelphia, the building that that really put Khan on the, you know, brought him to world attention is the Richards Medical Research Laboratories at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, this is a building that was commissioned in 1957 and uh, completed in 1961. And within a few months of its completion, it was the subject of a one-building exhibit at uh, the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And, you know, that's a rare occurrence. Uh, that doesn't happen every day, and there was only one instance before that, and it was another great Pennsylvania building, which was Falling Water, uh, in 1938. Uh, and you know, the building got celebrate, you know, written up in newspapers and magazines around the world. And so, in terms of early and important influence of Khan internationally, that's a great, great example. Is it the most successful building he ever did? No. It's a building that's been challenging, uh, but it's, it's one that still draws people from around the world to come see it 50 years after it was completed. But throughout Pennsylvania, there's a number of remarkable works. The houses you know, that we've discussed in our book, uh, seven of them, uh, eight of them are in the Philadelphia region or in the five counties around Philadelphia. Uh, throughout Pennsylvania, there's a factory out in Harrisburg, sadly very much altered, uh, altered beyond recognition is what we've said newspaper fa uh, plant uh, out in uh, uh, Greensboro, the Tribune Review. Um, still a building that's in pretty good shape, not unscathed by, by later additions. Um, and some of the housing projects from World War II, uh, Pennypack Woods in Northeast Philadelphia is still in remarkable condition. Um, but the others uh, out in Coatesville, for example, uh, uh, in Middletown, uh, there's, there's, there's fragments of them that survive. Um, but uh, really his best-known works are outside of Pennsylvania, in Texas, in, in Connecticut, in Bangladesh, in India. <laughs> what kind of shape are his houses in? By and large, they're in very good condition. 
um, they were well built to begin with and uh, in some cases the original owners were still in them 50 years after they were built and uh, so you know the Fisher House, the Corman House, the Esherick House, works of the 1960s and 70s, relatively you know new. You know they're they're approaching 50, um, have been very well taken care of. Uh, works from the late 40s, early 50s. Um, you know so houses in Norristown area in uh, Wynwood, a little bit older but still in very good condition. Um, but that isn't to say that there aren't issues you know related to their preservation moving forward and. All architecture is fragile and subject to change, uh, and change is just a natural course of weathering and aging, but it's also the insensitive changes that occur over time. The second owner of the Janelle House, the house in Wynwood, um, hated modern modernism and uh, stripped the house of many of the interior furnishings that Kahn had done built in and made it a colonial revival interior. That's since changed back, and but there were certain things you could not bring back. Um, and uh, so those changes and things can happen very quickly, especially in a private house. Are any of them open to the public? They're all private houses. Um, and uh, we have a unique um, opportunity through the Architectural Archives at the University of Pennsylvania. This is where Kahn's papers are, are held. And uh, over many, many years, the archives has built a relationship with the homeowners because many people want to visit them from around the world and often they'll come to the collection at Penn they'll see some of the drawings that are there they'll see the exhibition gallery that's there and see some of Khan's work in terms of what he did in the drafting room on display but then they want to extend their visit in Philadelphia in some way so over years the archives built a series of relationships with the homeowners that made it possible on special occasions to arrange for tours and visits to the houses and so they're not open to the public, but that isn't to say that they aren't accessible. And I think the owners realize the special legacy they have. They realize what those houses have given them in terms of the experience, in terms of the, the, the qualities they have. And they all remarkably, in a sense, seem open to sharing those experiences with others. Well, I was going to ask, when, when you uh, wanted to put this book together and you approached the owners of each of the houses, did any of them think, well, I don't... I want my privacy. I, that's not, you know, people love to see their houses in, 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 in print. And the con houses have been in magazines before, but never kind of comprehensively discussed in the way that we, we did our book. We only had one, you know, for us there was one house we couldn't visit. And, you know, it's, it's really the circumstances of that individual just made it so that it was not possible. Um, and so we really had to, to, to really hunt down photography for it. One of the things we did it in, the, in, in the book was commission new photography to show these houses uh, in the best light. And often they had never been photographed. Uh, and so we, this was our only way of, of, of publishing them was to create new photos. There was one house that we couldn't, we couldn't do that. So we, in the last minute, we, we found a colleague in Switzerland who had access to it in the early 80s, who was able to take a few shots that were, were good enough to put in the book and really brought that house uh, into a special light. Well, let's talk about the, the individual houses. You mentioned the, the Oser, is it, the first house? Yes. What, what's distinctive about it? What should people know about it? What interests you about it? It's his first house, you know, right. so it's the, right. I think, you know, 
people love to go to Frank Lloyd Wright's home and studio in, in, uh, in Oak Park, Illinois, and to see the place that he lived and worked. Um, for us, this is where Khan began his career. And so you, it's your first definitive statement. So what does he do? He's not building a white abstract box. He's building something that's built out of local stone, right? So we have, the Philadelphia region is blessed with a remarkable uh, tradition in masonry construction. You know, that's bricks and stone. We have wonderful building stone in the area, great variety. And from the colonial period onwards, our architectural traditions have reflected that. And Khan built on that tradition in the Ozer House. So he's not, you know, in a sense, abandoning history, especially when it comes to great building. Um, you also see it's something that, you know, it does not have a pitched roof. It's got a flat roof. It's got windows that are horizontal. They're not vertical. And so in a sense, he's breaking with tradition in interesting ways. The interior is not, you know, it, it's more what we would say is what we see in our contemporary houses is that you have a flow between living rooms and dining rooms between various parts of the house, which at that time was something new. Which is one of the reasons why he couldn't get a mortgage for it. But he also um, made a fireplace wall out of um, local tile from the Mercer Tile Works up in Doylestown. But interestingly, he was more interested in the texture of the tiles than the, the finish that uh, the Mercer wanted, uh, expected you to use, so he turned all these tiles around so you saw the back of it where, it's, where the color is much more mottled and subtle. So, I mean, he, he was taking tradition and reinterpreting it. Did he get down to the details of saying this wall will be this color and this floor will be this type of tile, there, these will be the drapes? Oh, absolutely. There was not a decision that he didn't have a hand in. I think, you know, there was not always, you know, it just was, it always had to be that way with him, right? And that's why the buildings took longer to design. The, the Fisher House took four years to design, right? Three years to build, right? That's seven years from when you commission a house to when they move in. Not all of them were like that, and, and some of it had to do with the circumstances of, of the volume of work he had in his office at the time. But it reflected that he had to, you know, to, to make all decisions. I mean, that it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but where... When it counted, he, his hand was there, and right, his the, eye was there. For the Ozer House, he took it upon himself to actually um, acquire all of the freestanding furniture also, um, chairs and tables in addition to, to cabinetry that he built in. He, built a, he designed a bedroom set for the house um, and, it, and selected the um, draperies also. It, so. it also could be said it was a one-man office at that time, right. so there was nobody else to help him out at that time. So. Right, but the clients could have rejected that and yeah. brought in their own furniture, but they decided to let him do what we would call a complete work of art. Yeah. Yeah. Now, two things you hear about Frank Lloyd Wright houses are that, or buildings are that the roofs leak and the houses aren't necessarily comfortable to live in. Similar types of problems with Louis Kahn houses? Not what we hear from the clients. I mean, there were some problems, uh, but generally the clients are very happy, have been very happy with their houses. Well, I think the Ozer House in particular, and there's a wonderful story of uh, the third owner of the Ozer House. And, you know, there's a letter that we discovered in the process of going through uh, the research uh, uh, for the book. And it's one of those remarkable things where if you don't uncover every stone, you, you miss some real jewels. And it was a fan letter to Lou Kahn, 
and it was completely unexpected and he you know he writes back of his delight in receiving it because one of the things that he brought to his architecture was this sense of a responsibility to the future right and that a house should not be so idiosyncratic to the architect or to the client right and so Frank Lloyd Wright houses can be very idiosyncratically his right uh, they're defined by a certain stylistic approach, a certain con conception of architecture is a better way of saying it, um, that, it that is unmistakably Frank Lloyd Wright. Kahn's houses are, are more subtle in that way, and they're, they're neither his nor his clients, and they are, in a sense, trying to establish a, a, you know, a offer, in a sense, a way of life, right, that can then be picked up by the next guy the next family, the one after that. So this wonderful letter from June Silver, you know, the third owner of, of the Ozer House, you know, it's just, she hasn't even changed her stationery yet. She crosses it out and puts Stetson Road on it and just said, you know, I just, you know, I had to write to you because of how beautiful this house, it's like you had designed it for, for us, for our family. We could not be happier. And if I didn't write this to you, I would simply burst, right? And it's a, it's a wonderful letter. And she says somehow, Deep in, our, in your subconscious, 20 years ago, you were building this house for us, too. How often do these houses come on the market? Well, you know, we mentioned that many of them stayed with the families for decades. Um, you know, the, the Corman house is still in the Corman family, although it's the eldest son uh, lives in it now. Um, the, but sometimes it was just a few years. The Ozer house, it was four or five years. And after the war, uh, Jesse Ozer and his family moved out to Los Angeles. And the, the Eshrick House, uh, the client Margaret Eshrick, who is a bookseller in Chestnut Hill, died six months after the uh, house was built. She was a young woman, but uh, you mentioned that one of the houses, and maybe more of them, are on the in the National Trust. Well, the the Fisher House um, is in some ways Khan's best-known house. And it's in Hatboro. Uh, it's a house that was finished in 1967. And a beautiful, simple house, two cubes, built of cypress, wonderful natural wood, a cabinet. I mean, it's built, has the quality of a cabinet. So it's a, a remarkable thing. The Fishers were especially sensitive to thinking about the long-term preservation of the house. And so they made a gift of the house to the National Trust of, for Historic Preservation, not in a sense to open it up as a museum but in order to place a series of easements on the, the house. And I think for many people, they're familiar with easements in terms of open space preservation. So farmland, for example, out in Chester County and ensuring that a natural landscape be preserved uh, is perhaps how we're most familiar. But in terms of architecture, you can put the same restrictions on, you can't change the facade of the house. You can't paint the interior, right? The Fisher House has a very special plaster work on, in, on the inside of the house that is intrinsically significant in terms of the effect that the architect is trying to achieve. So one of the easements is you can't paint the inside. You also have you know, other things that really make it very restrictive. And to the family that bought it, to the couple that bought it, that didn't matter. They paid above the price that it was thought that the house would sell for. Um, and they're marvelous you know, in terms of their understanding of it and in, you know, their hopes and, and and you know how they're going to continue to to take care of it. These are people who really wanted to live in a Lucan house, and so they got it.
Yeah. Well, let's in the time we have left, let's just go through the houses that you have in here and, and get you to talk about each one of them and some of your thoughts and what makes them special. Are they in order of that they were built in the book? Yeah. Yes. In chronological order. Uh, the Roach House, White Marsh Township. Yeah. So this was an interesting house. I mean, it was it was one that, in a sense, in every other book done on Con, it really fell through the cracks. And uh, the fun thing about that is there was this gap in the dating. And it was supposedly commissioned in 45 and finished in, in 49. And for several years, we didn't know what was going on. We couldn't, you know, did the client, was it this amazing design process that we've lost uh, connection to? But it turned out that the United Nations, uh, when they were determining where they would have their headquarters, Philadelphia was the major contender. And it was the most likely place that it was going to wind up before an 11th hour bid by New York with the Rockefellers offering this magnificent site on, you know, on the East River um, where it was snatched away from Philadelphia. Um, but the uh, principal meeting spaces for the UN would have been in uh, the uh, Fairmount Park in the in, uh, Winfield area, uh, so where the Man Music Center is. And the secretariat, so the office space would have been up in Mequon. So in that area of, of northwest Philadelphia. And so that was the site was of the Roche House. And so Khan was very much involved with promoting that uh, and being a part of putting the proposal together to bring the United Nations here. So he knew it. And so he told his client, let's just hold off for a while. And of course, in the end, it didn't happen. And so they went ahead and did the design for the house. Are all of his houses individual? Or can you go through them and recognize little tricks that he puts into each of his houses. Do the bathrooms all look the same or the, the kitchen walls or anything like that? He wasn't so excited about the kitchens and the bathrooms. So in a way, um, there's a certain conventionality about, about They're well designed, um, but you but wouldn't say that that's where he's making a distinctive mark. They're all well built. And so you, you know, in the houses, you really see a concentration on fine workmanship. Uh, there's an expression of how a thing is put together, right? So you see a certain consistency, but each is different. I mean, the materials in one is different from another, is different from another. But w if one would say that if there is a quality, especially in the later houses, it's that sensitivity to natural light and to the, to the effect, to the mood that it can establish inside the house and where you place windows, how you shape the light and the experience. That really is what makes a con house. Do any of them look dated at all now? I don't. I don't think so. I think they they've, they have a timeless quality. I mean, there's certain certain houses of the late '40s that look like the houses of the late '40s, and so you know, if you look at the Weiss house, you see that there's a certain resonance with what the architect Marcel Breuer was doing at the time, and they are very elegant and very classic, you know, in design, so that they they still seem remarkably fresh. But you know that that's a 1947, 48, 49 house. But when you get to the the Eshrick House, when you get to the Fisher House, these are ones that, you know, I think have a certain quality that makes them timeless. And the Shapiro House, which is a very unusual house uh, where he put kind of two pavilions together. Um, and uh, they're certainly not a dated house. And yeah. Oh, did you do anything particular about windows? Like, can you look at them and say, oh, that's a Louis Kahn brick to glass or windows? Well, the window in the Asterisk House is a sort of a T-shaped window, uh, and that that also appears in his factory in, or is in the Tribune building in, uh, in in Greensboro. Right. 
Well, windows are, you know, are a way to look out into the world. And there's a conventional sense of a window, you know, a double hung window, and you, know, you have a way of, of, of bringing light into a space and looking out into the world. But that can also become something much more sophisticated, right? And so the placement of windows are about where light will be in the inside of a house over the course of a day, right? And so you could structure the experience of a house around that very fact, and that through the course of the day, through the course of the year, that quality of light changes all the time, right? And it's a remarkable sensitivity to light. Um, and the windows are very much a part of it. But he does these windows that have a certain depth to them. They're not just the thickness of the wall. In fact, they could be sometimes two feet thick. And so he's giving a place for light to kind of gather, right? So he's making room for light, it, it, one could say. And in that space, you know, you can have a bookshelf, but you can also have a shutter that opens out and allows one to change the quality of the facade, you know, to change the quality of light. You know, you're essentially allowing for ventilation in the house, uh, but each window is very different in that way. Are uh, these houses on big lots? I mean, they're sitting by themselves, or are any of them crowded in with other houses around them? Um, most of them are on relatively small lots. Um, the Corman House is out in uh, White Marsh Township, and it has a lot of land around it. But uh, generally, they were filled. They were houses that were filling in spaces in the suburbs, um, Chestnut Hill or in, in Winview. Win yeah. Do you have a favorite? Uh, oh, it's hard to say. I mean, all the ho each house is different, but um, I kind of like the Shapiro house. It seems, perhaps for me, the most livable house, because it's... What, what do people know about it? I mean, when you look at it, it just sort of looks like the white box that you were talking about earlier. It's not a box. It's, it's a kind of a long a white facade, but if you go around the house, uh, which is on a slope, you'll find that the whole uh, back of it um, is is made of wood and windows looking out onto the school kill way below, so it's yeah it's a marvelous house. Uh, are a lot of them one story or did uh, there two story or three story houses he did? Uh, I think there's none that are three three stories. I mean the Ozer house maybe you know basement and up, uh, but it's really a factor of the site and of of what the clients were after. You know the Roche house is a single story house. Corman two-story. Some are split level. The Janelle house has three levels, but it's really a, a you know, it's because of the, the topography of the site, the slope of the site that we see that. Um, you know, so it was, you know, they could be responsive in that way. Uh, are there ever any of these houses that have an open house, like once a year, where you can come and tour the house, or is it, do people who live in a tree well, the like Chestnut Hill right Historical now? Society did a, uh, a modern houses tour uh, this past summer, and the Eshrick House was part of that tour. Um, and occasionally, the houses are open up uh, in that way. Um, and you know, but I've 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 over many years have been able to bring tours through the houses, and it is a pretty remarkable thing to see how people respond to the houses. It's a secret, you know, of, of re the research for our book is that it, it involves, you know, the experience that I've had and that George, too, has had in a more limited way of interacting with people in these houses and seeing their impressions and getting the sense of their experience and the questions they ask and, you know, just the joy that they have in experiencing these places um, and how they're trying to engage with them, right? And it's a, it's a wonderful thing.
but it's also interesting to see how um, the visitor responds to the houses. I've taken my students uh, to some of the houses, uh, and Bill gives, has given a number of tours, and it's just a, a, an, an immediate reaction of, of you know excitement when they walk into some of these houses. Where do you teach? Uh, University of Pennsylvania in the art history department. What kinds of courses do you teach? I teach the history of modern design, and that's where I'm coming from, uh, sort of a, more of an interior uh, interest. And Bill, what's your day job? Oh, I'm the curator of the architectural archives at the University of Pennsylvania. So uh, our, the, the collection we're best known for is the Lewis Kahn collection. I've been there for 20 years, and I've had the great you know, privilege of, of being a part of that. And that's the other secret to our book is, is in a sense, having that depth of experience with the collection and being able to shape um, you know, uh, an approach to the questions that we were exploring in the book you know, uh, with that depth of knowledge and with the experience of the houses themselves and with the relationships we built with the clients, with those who worked for Lou. It's, not, it's, it's very unusual to have that kind of in depth of research in a, in a book on architecture. Uh, it just doesn't Usually, you're not fortunate enough to have that, you know, that that experience. How, how is an archive like that useful, uh, as opposed to just the papers that sit in vaults for forever? Well, I mean, in a sense, these are papers that sit in vaults. But it's it's, you know, all institutions have a different character of how they project that out into the world, and in a in a repository that's collecting architectural records. So this is this is this is how architects develop their their ideas. And that's their art, right? Do they really build buildings? No, there's contractors, there's tradesmen, there's artisans that build those things. The architects, their art is in how they bring that, those ideas together, how they handle the pressures and tensions of a design process while having you know, ideas that relate to what art is about, what the art of architecture is about. How do you harness them and bring them through this process that can be very compromising? Right, uh, it's a very tense process. It's a very deliberative process. It makes architecture one of you know one of the great arts because it's it, it, it is a servant to society. It is a servant to a client. It is something that requires collaboration with others, and it's a remarkable thing. That's what you find in an archive. It's never complete. It'll never tell you every nook and cranny of the story, but you know a lot of it is there, and we found a lot of it and made great use of it. And then where we needed to talk to clients, we found them, right? Um, and it's a great resource. Did he do models for these houses? Often, yes, uh, but not always. Uh, each architect is different. Khan used models quite often. And these were not necessarily presentation models that were intended for the clients. They could be made of, of shirt cardboard is what they, you know, if you buy a shirt, there's this cheap cardboard that comes with it. Well, the, you know, Philadelphia was a textile city, so they had this cheap cardboard in abundance. Khan found it and started making models out of it. Um, these were not to be shown to the client, but were a way for him to study the quality of light, the sense of space. Other architects would do it differently. Um, but mostly he drew uh, uh, on yellow tracing paper. Um, this is a way that you're layering your ideas. So a draftsman, uh, a, a colleague in the office may have done a drawing using rulers, drawing T-squares and triangles, so which is a dimension drawn. Khan might come in and do a sketch over top in charcoal. Do you have his models in your uh, Yeah, so that the collection at Penn is, is a remarkable collection. It's 36,000 drawings. 
and these are documenting about 220 projects that he designed uh, during his career. There's 150 boxes of uh, files, and so these are correspondence, notes, specifications, product catalogs, all sorts of things associated with uh, an architectural practice. Thousands and thousands of photographs, and these are photographs of models of the buildings under construction and so on. And these are all uh, materials that were saved. They were going to get dispersed. And when Khan died, he was $463,000 in debt. Uh, this was money mostly owed to uh, his engineers, to his collaborators, uh, in the process of doing these remarkable designs. And it was through a grassroots effort uh, begun here in Philadelphia, but throughout the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania that saw this extraordinary occurrence of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania acquire, you know, buying the collection, and since 1978, it's been entrusted to the University of Pennsylvania. Can the public go look at them? Yeah. And so this is uh, a collection that's open to the public. Uh, if one wants to do research, you've got to make an appointment. Uh, we get more than 400 people a year coming in to use the collection. It doesn't sound like a lot, but that's actually quite a bit. And, you know, because it's saying that there are people from around the world who are coming to use the collection. And so most recently we had about four people from Italy in the reading room at the same time uh, looking at different aspects of Khan. We have many other collections at this point. The Khan collection really gave us a nucleus around which we have 390 collections now and you know, great Philadelphia architects but also international architects. Uh, but we have an exhibition gallery and there'll be an exhibit uh, focused on Khan's houses that will open in February, Khan's birthday, February 20th. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with George Marcus and William Whitaker. They are the authors of The Houses of Louis Kahn. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.